I want to maybe start with a story that uh, a version of a story like this may be familiar to you, may have taken place in your own home. Uh, I, I talked to a little boy recently, one Christmas, who told me before Christmas that all he wanted was a bike. He was very specific about the bike, a bike that had gears, a bike that had brakes on the handlebars, a specific color. This is, this is what he wanted. This is what he was dreaming of. And can you imagine somebody, a child, wanting something just really, really bad? This was a, a dream, a passion of theirs. And going to sleep on Christmas Eve. Waking up the next morning. Siblings rushing into the room where the Christmas tree was lit up. Where parents were sitting there with hopefully smiles on their faces, welcoming their children. All the fanfare, all the nostalgia that goes into this moment. And the children begin unraveling the packages and tearing away and with screams and positive screams, hopefully, of, look what I got. <laughs> and this young boy, as he's going through packages and he's excited about what he is getting and what he has gotten comes down to the very last package and he unwraps it and there he finds a bike helmet a little anticlimactic don't you think can you imagine maybe being this young boy and having this feeling this build up this anticipation and then in that moment, on that day, a new helmet. <laughs> What's interesting is we look at this encounter as we are back in the book of Mark. As we look at this encounter, if you read it carefully, this encounter, the triumphant entry, is a pretty anticlimactic event. Before we broke from our study in the book of Mark, we had spent a lot of time, because in Mark, it, the, the setting had changed. It was like Act 2, and Jesus was heading to Jerusalem, and that was His focus. And if you remember, in one of our sermons, one of the things that we looked at is that the disciples could tell that there was something different about Jesus as He had started this final journey towards Jerusalem. There was this build-up. There was this buzz. There was this anticipation. And in fact, in our last sermon on Mark, we found Jesus in Jericho. And, and we talked about that Jericho would have been maybe one of the last stops. It was about a day's journey up to Jerusalem. And again, one of the things that we got caught up in, hopefully, was that this was Jesus coming to Jerusalem, that this was the focus. And in some ways, in some ways, as Mark is writing, in some ways we could look at Mark's writing and say everything that Mark has written is building up to this moment of Jesus going into Jerusalem. Listen with me. As I read how Mark starts his gospel. 
In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And certainly when we hear this in the very beginning and we hear this quotation of the book of Isaiah, that we know that one of the things that they are talking about when it's talking about that Jesus being on the way, on the path, that it is talking about how he lived and what he taught and what he did. But I also think that what was in mind was the nature of the path that Jesus was on from his baptism to his crucifixion. And so what we have and what we're looking at this morning is kind of this culmination, this event of Jesus, the King, the Messiah, going into Jerusalem. And didn't we see it last time that we were in Mark? Do you remember? Do you remember one of the great things that we looked at with Bartimaeus? Bartimaeus, this beggar on the side of the road. Whose society looked at him as an outcast. And you remember the phrase that he repeated twice? Jesus, son of David. And we saw that this was a pronouncement of King Jesus as here, the son of David, the Messiah. And this was a pronouncement of Jesus as he was getting ready to head into Jerusalem. That this was a pronouncement that the king is on his way. The Messiah, the prophesied one from the house of David. And in between the beginning of the book of Mark and the pronouncement of Bartimaeus. We have Mark writing to us, telling us about who this king is. And at times, Mark is writing some things that are just very subtle, but huge. If you remember, one of the things that struck me as I was preparing for this was in our time together when we looked at Jesus' baptism. And the words were used there that the heavens were torn. And it takes us back to the idea of Isaiah chapter 63. In Isaiah chapter 63 when it says, Oh, that the heavens were, would be torn and that God would come down and that He would rescue His people. And we talked about the imagery there of Mark telling us very subtly who this Jesus is. He is God in the flesh coming to save His people. Or what about right before the feeding of the 5,000? And we remember that Jesus was there with the multitudes were coming. And as Jesus looked out, it said that he had compassion upon them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And the idea there was is that he began to shepherd them. He began to feed them. Again, this Old Testament imagery of that God had sent a shepherd to his people. The Son of God was here, was shepherding His people. Or what about when Jesus would come in contact with demons and they would loudly proclaim who He, who he was. We know who you are, Son of God, Most High. 
all throughout the reading of this gospel, we've had these proclamations of who this Christ is. He is the King. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. And He is on this journey. He is on this path. And He is headed into Jerusalem. The holy city. And there's all kinds of anticipation of what's going on. You've got these crowds that are with him, that had been following him. There's a stir. There's a thought even from the book of John that maybe Lazarus was with Jesus heading into Jerusalem. He had raised Lazarus from the dead. Great crowds were coming because it was the time of the Passover. There was anticipation. Jesus is coming. What will he do? What will this be like? I'm sure some in the crowd thought, this is it. Jesus is going to come in. He's going to overthrow this Roman oppression. He's going to establish his kingdom. We are going to make him king and he is going to rule us. This one with great authority and great power is going to rule over us. He's going to sit down in the throne in Jerusalem and rule us. The Messiah has come to his people. And if you listened closely as Josh read the scripture this morning surely we saw this pageantry of a donkey of clothes coats being laid out of leafy branches proclamations of who this was but did you notice how anticlimactic the ending of this section was look at verse 11 you have that all of this buildup the king is here he is entering into Jerusalem and notice Jesus entered Jerusalem, came to the temple. After looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. Maybe not what we're expecting. Maybe not what we're expecting. We all know that a misreading of this text would, would be that, hey... They got it. They were saying Hosanna. They understood who he was. That would be a misreading of this text. And plus, we know the ending. We know what's getting ready to happen in the Passion Week. But isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that we get the king coming into Jerusalem? One scholar. One scholar as he was looking at this text, and there have been many studies on this, says this text has all the markings of a, of a great Roman authority or a great Roman general or a king coming and being coronated. You, you could do studies on almost every aspect of this triumphal entry from the cult of, of their significance and imagery and him riding in on a cult to the idea of leafy branches to this thing of these loud proclamations of the king coming in and the, the general, the conqueror, the, the one coming through the streets, these proclamations of, look, here he comes, here he comes, that, that when Mark is writing this, he gives us all of these ideas of this is what's going on. This is an important, victorious figure coming in, even, even ending up at the temple, a holy place, a place of... Significance. 
And what would you expect? What would you expect for the Messiah, the chosen one, the king, riding into Jerusalem? What would you expect once he gets to the temple for the response to be? Wouldn't you expect that the priest had maybe prepared that the, the rulers of the synagogue and the rulers of the temple would be waiting and standing there, maybe riding with him, maybe in front of him, you know, make way. The Lord has come. He is coming into his temple. He is coming into his house. And that's not what Jesus finds as he comes to the temple. Bartimaeus, even though at this point it may seem that he wasn't, Bartimaeus was right. This was the king. This was the son of David. And he was coming to his throne. The reality, the reality, is that almost all of those involved didn't understand what was taking place. They weren't truly grasping who he was. And I think as they were with him and as they were ushering him in. That maybe they weren't wrong, but maybe their thoughts of who he was were still just way too small. They still weren't thinking big enough when it came to Jesus. One of the things if you've been paying attention as we've been going through the book of Mark. One of the things that's interesting and it's interested Bible readers forever is how Jesus handles uh, his life um, before this moment. What I mean by that is that one of the questions that we always ask is, you know, hey, you know, Jesus heals this person and then says something like this. Don't tell anybody. We're like, what's that about? I mean, even when the demons were proclaiming that here is the Son of God Most High. We know who you are. Jesus quiets them. He doesn't allow them to proclaim who He was. And in fact, there are other times, there are other times that there are large crowds that are gathering and Jesus does what? He leaves. It's almost like He doesn't want to make a scene. Sometimes in the Gospels, we even have that some were coming, they wanted to take Him, to, to, to bring him and to make him king. And Jesus would back off, say, no, no, no. My time has not yet come. Do you notice the shift? Do you notice the shift in Jesus' attitude? Do you notice the shift in, in, in how Jesus handles this situation? There, there's quite a change here. And it actually begins with Bartimaeus. That when Bartimaeus proclaims that Jesus, son of David, he doesn't tell Bartimaeus to be quiet. He doesn't limit what he is saying. He allows Bartimaeus to, to proclaim the truth about who he is as he is walking and as he is going towards Jerusalem. And there are other shifts as well. And I want to ask you a real basic question. No trick here. What was Jesus' main mode of transportation? His walking. Walking. 
One of my friends as we were growing up used to call his feet his dogs. When we would run or be playing sports, he'd say, my dogs are tired. <laughs> Walking his two legs. And do we think Jesus walked a little or quite a lot? Oh, yeah, quite a lot. So isn't it interesting? Let's look at verse 1 through 3. And as they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go in the village opposite of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send you back here. And then look at verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus. He's put their coats on it, and he sat on it. Bethany was about two miles from Jerusalem. What do we suppose is going on here? You think he's just tired? Maybe he pulled a hammy on his walk up from Jericho? Or do we begin to understand the reality of what's going on? That Jesus is making a proclamation. Where Jesus before had said, my time had not yet come. Now, Jesus is welcoming the fanfare. Jesus is fanning the flames of the anticipation. And Jesus is... Actively and passively at times doing things to make this public spectacle of the king is coming. The king is here. They understood the symbol of him riding in on this donkey that had never been ridden on before. Mark doesn't point it to it directly, but Matthew does in his, in his telling of the same account. This prophecy from the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humbled and mounted on a donkey. Jesus is inviting the crowds to see him as their king, as their Messiah, as the prophesied one. As the one that is fulfilling this prophecy in the book of Zechariah. And this is quite a change from how he had operated in the past. And I love the reality of this miracle. Look at verse four through six. When he had told them, go and. Get this donkey. And it says they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them and gave them permission. If you and I wanted to 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 prepare our own parade or our own um, fanfare of making much of ourselves. And we wanted to ride in on a donkey that had never been ridden on before. We would either have to raise the donkey ourselves or start calling around. But the king of the universe doesn't have to do that, does he? Because God had prepared this. And as he was going into Jerusalem, he was making this declaration. He was making this declaration of here I am, the king who is coming to you.
Notice also the change. The change. We said earlier that another change that is occurring here in his outward proclamation of this is who I am is that at other times in the gospel as he is trying to keep kind of quiet his identity, now we see Jesus not only riding in on the donkey, but notice there are uh, shouts. They brought the colt and put their coats on it and he sat on it. And many spread out their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting. And Jesus does nothing to quiet them. And notice what they're shouting. They're shouting Psalm 118. Now one of the things that, because we're kind of far removed from this, one of the things that that you may need to know is that there was this thing called the Hillel, and it was Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. And what would happen is that during holy days, during significant holy moments, that a good Jewish person might sing or shout or recite these songs. It's thought that at the Last Supper, you remember at the Last Supper when Jesus and the disciples get up and it says that they sang a song, that this would be the example of during the holy days, them singing part of this this psalm. And the reason that this is important is because it was Holy Days. It was Passover. And there was a recognition that something big and something significant was taking place. And look at what they were shouting. Hosanna. Do we know what these words mean? Save us now. Hosanna. Save us now. And then in this psalm, Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's this pointing to that God is doing something, that this one that is coming, this one that is here is from God and is about God's business. Blessed is the one who comes from God most high. And notice in this second refrain, we've heard these words before recently in the book of Mark. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna, save us now in the highest. These proclamations, these shouts that were being uttered from these people in front and behind was this proclamation He is here. Save us now. There is something special and unique and holy that is taking place. And this was being shouted in front of him and behind him. And Jesus does nothing to silence it. In fact, he welcomes it. Go back to my story of the boy. The boy let his parents know that he wanted a bike for Christmas. It's my assumption that there were talks about this. Maybe even the parents were even asking probing questions like, well, what color do you want that bike to be? Let's measure and see how big of a bike that you would need. 
and then a helmet? Not only is this anticlimactic, but it's a little ironic. These expectations, this build-up, you know what we want, and this is what we get. Isn't it fascinating, the irony that's involved in this account? The streets are filled with people making these proclamations of who this Jesus is. And he gets to the temple and it's nothing. It's business as usual. Another way to say this is that he gets to his own house. In the streets, things were being prepared, but then he gets to his own house and there were no preparations. One of the areas that has been pointed out over and over again, another irony of this account, is this whole idea that some of the people, assuredly some of the people that were maybe in this crowd, that were in this procession, that were on the sides of the road, that were caught up in the moment, that were caught up in the emotions of the moment, who may have been yelling Hosanna as well and laying branches or their own coats on the road, certainly not too long from now, these same people, some of them, not all of them, some of them would be shouting, crucify him. Isn't there some irony in the fact that the priests and the rulers of the temple who should have been the ones that were preparing and leading the way and welcoming him into Jerusalem, that these were the very same ones that at this moment were preparing and leading the way to kill him on a cross? What about the irony of some of the folks that were in the crowd with him, that were made the journey with him to Jerusalem? Some of his disciples and those that were in the in crowd, those that were on the way. I mean, certainly we could talk about the irony of Judas being in this crowd. What about Peter? Peter himself may be thinking, this is it. And then not too long from now would deny him. Even think about some of these that followed him all the way to the cross. Think about Mary for a moment. That Mary followed him all the way to the cross. And, and then at the tomb, when the body was not there, Although she had surely heard Jesus's predictions. Her first thought was not that Jesus was who he said he was and that Jesus was doing what he said he was going to do. Her first thought was, is where did they take the body? Who stole it? Thoughts. Dreams and visions and excitement and they're still not getting it and the reality of what they are living through is that the moment that these this great wonderful event takes a turn and things get more serious and things when I say serious I mean in a negative way they lose sight of who he is of who he has said that he is 
their hopes and dreams and expectations are too small. Now, some of you may have guessed the end of the story of the little boy in the bike. His father said, hey, why don't we try out that new helmet? Son says, sure. They go down to the garage and there it is. Right? There's the bike. Dad had come through. Brothers and sisters. Your heavenly father loves you. Your heavenly father always comes through. You can trust your father. You can trust him. That even in these moments when things seem to be turning and things aren't turning out like we think that they should, that God is at work. I'm often caught that the Bible doesn't say merely that God is loving. The Bible says that God is love. He's sovereign. He's merciful. He is Lord. Can you trust him? I wonder when Jesus enters the temple. I wonder what he's thinking. He enters the temple. He looks around at everything. And then he goes back to Bethany. Now we know one of the things he's probably thinking. We're speculating here. But one of the things that's in his mind is that he will come back the next day and he's going to cleanse the temple. There's a part of me that wonders. Here he was. He was here to take his throne. There was all this fanfare. He walks into his house. I wonder if he was thinking they have no idea what's getting ready to happen. This temple. This place. That was constructed a place where man could come and meet with God. It's not going to be needed anymore. My work on the cross abolishes the need for sacrifices. I wonder if he was thinking that as he was looking in at the temple and looking at all the things being sold. Not only was he angry because of what it had become, but maybe he was also in his mind thinking about what was getting ready to happen, is that there's no more need for this. Maybe he was looking at these high priests. There's no more need for you either. I am the great high priest who has come to his own. And isn't it interesting Just maybe, 
as he was sitting there thinking about that. Nobody else got it. He was up to something much greater than they could ever imagine. And the question that I have for you this morning, will you see him for who he is? Will you allow Jesus to become bigger than your little small version of him? This is easy in times of excitement or times maybe when we're singing great songs or having this great, these great moments together or individually. But what about in those moments where life may not be going the way you think it should go? How are you going to respond? Will you trust who he is. One of the things I think that happens to us, and I, I love to use this language because it, it communicates to me, is that don't we so many times ride life's emotional roller coaster? And that when things are up, we're up. But when things take that downturn, oh boy, we're down. And the call that Christ has on the life of a believer is that you don't have to ride that roller coaster. And you may ask this morning, Lewis, what, how do you not ride the roller coaster? Don't you know that things happen? Yes, I get it. The way that we get off the roller coaster is by first acknowledging that our feelings can lie to us and lead us into places that are not godly and lead us into thoughts and doubts and opinions that are not godly. And that if we can recognize that, then we pick our eyes up and we focus on Jesus. The sovereign king. And we trust him. There's no way for the folks who were with Jesus to know exactly what was going on. Although Jesus did tell them. Pretty close. But what's interesting is that I think. We see something in the life of his followers. That we recognize in ourselves. And that is how easily. How easily. That life can take us somewhere. And it gets us off of our vision and our knowledge of who this Christ is. And I'm asking you this morning, will you trust Him? Will you trust Him? In this book, and part of this we sang about this morning, but in this book, we have the reality of all that He has done, and we have the reality of what God has chosen for us so that we can see Clearly who Jesus is and who God the Father is and the Spirit and the Spirit's work in our life. We know what He has done for us. And we also know what He is doing for us now. And we also know what is going to happen in the future. Not specifically. Some of you think you have that nailed down more than what you should. 
But what we do know, what we do know, and that we should get as we read this text, this triumphant entry, it should take us in our day and age from him riding on a donkey to him coming back on a horse. Victorious. Our thoughts should go there. Our thoughts should also go that here we have him going into Jerusalem and comparatively this small group of people that would have seemed large at the time singing Hosanna. But on that day when he returns, every knee will bow. There will be an acknowledgement that he is Lord and King. For some to the praise and the glory and honor and to others question is, will you trust him? Do you trust him? Maybe as your life this morning is not according to what you think God should be doing in your life. Do you trust him? Look to him. Father, you are good. It's no coincidence this morning. I have had three or four conversations, casual, casual conversations in the hallway of, man, I am just blah today. You fix the blah. God, help us to see your son. Help us to see you. Love. You are love. You are mercy. You are just. You are good. And you are sovereign. Expand our vision of who you are. Enlarge our minds and our hearts. And empower us to be the church. People who worships you in all that we do. Help us to have such a grand vision of who you are that we strive with our life to not live it for our own happiness, our own comfort, or our own safety, but to worship and glorify you. That's where our joy is found. And we thank you for that. It's in your son's name, Jesus. Amen.